Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given, a still pretty new cricketing podcast with myself, Toby Tarrant, ex-England fast bowling legend and incredibly handsome chap, Mr. Stephen Finn, and national treasure, Daniel Norcross, or national disgrace, <laughs> Daniel Norcross, <laughs> depending on what you think of the man. Um, and we are also joined by a genuine, bona fide national treasure, in the form of Alison Mitchell. Hello, Alison Mitchell. How are you? Are you okay? <laughs> Hello, Toby. I'm very well, thank you. I've never been described as a national treasure before. I'm not sure what kind of treasure. Are we talking like kind of gold coins or? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I don't believe for a moment that you have been referred to as a national treasure. I don't buy that for a second, Alison. Um, now, I've got a question for you, Alison, straight away, because mm. we uh, started recording a little bit late because we've had we've had busy evenings. And producer Sal was delighted at this news because it meant that he could finish watching Mastermind. So he was very, very happy. And then the, the conversation started between me and Sal on WhatsApp of what would your Mastermind topic be? So it doesn't have to be cricket related. It can be cricket related. But if you were sat in that famous chair and you, and you had to back yourself on one topic, what are you going for? God, this is a hard one. This is the kind of thing like you debate over the pub after several pints, isn't it's it? It's a locking chat. Night. It's a very good yeah, lock-in yeah, lock, chat. Yeah, a lockdown <laughs> chat. Um, how specific do you need to be? Can I, can I say children's programmes of the 1980s? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love a bit of Trumpton, the Blumps. I mean, I'm talking like real kiddies programmes. Like, take take me back. You know, lockdown, <laughs> you start to you start to think backwards, don't you? You sort of unearth things from your past. <laughs> Can you still and find I've got, those and I've got nephew- Oh, do you know what? I've actually got a DVD of the Flumps. <laughs> I'm, you, I'm, not, I'm you, not joking. You love the Flumps, don't you? I've, I've, I've I heard, do. Like- I, I, actually, you could do a PhD on the Flumps. I've heard you talking about the Flumps. <laughs> There's a great episode, isn't there, where one of the Flumps, and I should see if a mastermind, I should know which one, just can't get rid of the rainy cloud above his head, and it follows him around everywhere. <laughs> I, I can't tell you what else happens in the episode, but it, you know, I really remember that one. Bagpus. 
is the other favourite one. And the chocolate biscuit factory in that episode's the best. Now, at the risk of sounding very young here, yeah. I've never seen an episode of that show. And I want to ask Stephen Finn, who is probably the closest to me. Finny, have you ever watched The Flumps? I thought The Flumps were sweets. Oh, <laughs> yes, they are as well. And I'm, and I'm young enough to go to the school shop and buy flumps. <laughs> what, uh, what about you, Finny? What are you going for? If you're a mastermind, what are you, what are you, what are you backing yourself on? Well, judging by most of what I've got up to for the last year or so due to lockdown, it would probably be the computer game FIFA and the iterations specifically between 2018 and 2021. <laughs> oh, yes. I think my knowledge of those would be exemplary. Well, I always think that's the trick to going on Mastermind is make your life easier by going really specific. So, Alison, my advice to you would be like, I'm just going to do the Flumps episode seven. Because then you don't, yeah. have to, then you don't have to revise as much. That's the the stupid people go on there and they just say like just generic things like the Ottoman Empire it was around for centuries. What are you doing? <laughs> See, what? Star Wars could be my other one, maybe. Huge oh, really? Star Wars fan. Yeah, the original. Well, I say the original three. The yeah, Star Wars: Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. But again, you'd have to hone it down, wouldn't you? Because even saying all three of those movies, that is a lot of film. That's a lot of research. Mm. Monty Panesar did well on um, Mastermind, didn't he? Yeah, a what was subjects? Yeah, what was Actually, I can't remember, but I, there are some good YouTube clips. I mean, another one of my specialist subjects could be random YouTube videos. Um, I <laughs> think I could, viral YouTube videos, I could probably peel off quotes and scenarios from all of those. And I think Monty Panesar features a few times for his um, Mastermind effort. I, I thought I thought your specialist, Finny, would be uh, songs of Craig David. That, oh. that, those, <laughs> yep. Especially the early ones. Not a big fan of the second and third album. The first album, word for word, no problem. <laughs> He's a bit like the Star Wars franchise, Craig David, isn't he? Peaked early. Peaked early. <laughs> Daniel, what about you? If you? I bet you're cricket, surely. Actually, because I expect to get to the final, I've got two specialist subjects. Okay. Because uh, that's how it works in Mastermind. You've got to win the first one, then you've got to like win the semi-final, and then you've got to go back into the final. You can choose one of the previous two. So I would start with Whoops Apocalypse, which is a, a six-part satirical comedy series in uh, about 1982, starring John Cleese, Peter Jones. I know every single word of that. And there is nothing, there's no question they can ask me about Whoops Apocalypse, the miniseries that I wouldn't get right. <laughs> And my semi-final special subject would definitely be Interwar Ashes series. So everything from 2021 to 1938, I am completely all over. Try me. Try me. Now. Go for it. You can't. Uh, You can't, uh, can you? What what about Surrey losses at Lords in four-day cricket? There's been quite a few of those. Actually, I... uh, I don't retain that kind of information for me. I I don't know what it is about it. Um, Selective memory, yeah, kicks in suddenly, doesn't it? I mean, Poffretto, when did it last happen? I don't think anybody is alive who can remember when that last happened. It's a fascinating insight into what I imagine living with Daniel Norcross is like. He conveniently forgets anything that sheds him in bad light. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I I don't remember that. No, I don't remember that at all, dear. No. Yeah, that was actually, that was, okay, to be serious for a moment, if you can be serious about losing... A, a really important cricket match that you knew you were going to get attacked for uh, a week later. It was it was it was appalling. I mean, I speak 
from the very heart of my soul as a Surrey fan, it was genuinely horrifying to listen and watch it unfold. And not because my boys didn't put in up a good fight, but because Middlesex won. And that is the worst thing that can ever happen to a Surrey <laughs> fan. Uh, it, it was agonising and dreadfully painful. And I think everybody involved with Surrey cricket knows this. They didn't mean for it to happen. It won't ever happen again, ever. And uh, let's never talk about it again. Well, we will come back to the county championship in a few moments' time. But I would like to remind everybody that listened to last week's episode when we were discussing who are the biggest six county teams. And Daniel Norcross oh. went on about how brilliant Surrey were oh, and right. was constantly having little, are. little digs, little pops at Middlesex. And Finney, to his credit, just sat there silently and didn't get involved, didn't stoop to Daniel Norcross's incredibly low level. And and look where we are. Toby, Toby, for, form is temporary, <laughs> right? Class is eternal. I'm just, you know, 1882, 1890. I'm talking George Loman, Tom Richardson, Jack Hobbs. I mean, Ken Barrington. That's uh, when they look, bowled underarm, isn't it? Well, <laughs> doesn't matter what they bowl. They beat your lot uh, very, very comfortably many, many, many times. So, you know. Look, I'm in agony, all right? I'm in agony. Yeah, I've we'll, we'll had a that. bad week already. You we'll come to... back to that. Uh, very quickly, oh. by the way, uh, Monty Padasar on Mastermind, he did Sikhism and its history and got six points in the opening round. However, uh, got just one of his 15 general knowledge questions correct. So he let himself down there in the what general the knowledge. Go on, Monty. Um, now, Alison, the reason that we have got you here and you have to come back, and I won't keep you for too long. I know you've got a very busy day tomorrow, but you have to come back and join us another time. Sure, it's sure. basically an opportunity for you to uh, to defend yourself because we don't want to be seen on this podcast to just be dishing it out and, uh, and not be willing to accept anything in return. So the Conversation came up a few weeks ago about the 100. Reportedly, they were going to change wickets to outs. And there was up Reportedly. And reportedly. I should well, they're thinking out. about it. Exactly. <laughs> Already, there's been a U-turn on this, and they've announced they've changed their mind. And I think we did say at the time, it's probably just a bit of a PR stunt, and it is now looking that way. However, Daniel Norcross, who, you know, you know what he's like, Alison. He gets very upset about very unimportant matters. And he was, uh, and he was, he was, so angry about this and he dragged your good name through the mud as well so i i did i do hear you know these things do get back to me <laughs> good good alison i'm glad you heard daniel norcross needs to stop get, he's been getting away with this for far too long and it's the time that finally somebody put him in his place um so you you were sort of being the pitch police and uh, and you were wading into the argument and saying look if we're going to have this chat here then really the word wicket is being used incorrectly explain your theory here Alison this has been a bugbear of mine for some time <laughs> because simply the pitch is the bit between the two wickets at either end three stumps and two bales make up a wicket and the pitch is the bit in the middle we have a pitch report do we not we don't have a wicket report and therefore the wickets are the things which have to be put down when you're run out. The wicket keeper is the keeper of the wickets. The wickets are the wickets and the pitch is the pitch. I rest my case. <laughs> Daniel Norcross, um, I feel like Judge Rinder here. Daniel Norcross, de defend yourself. Sticky wicket. That is, I'm afraid, the ultimate. I get it. I get the pitch police. I get what they're trying to say. 
I mean, it's a little bit of Australianism in there as well, because Alison made it very clear that it's what they do in Australia. And what, the wicket? Well, the pitch. Oh, the well, pitch. Yeah, yeah. Pitch. You, you put out there on Twitter, you did, you did. You said that in Australia, it's very clearly the pitch. And, did and I? Really, no, no, did. Not, I think I think that's someone else, wasn't it? He said that, but really, I talk, I, I think I teased you about the Aussies calling the ball the pill, didn't I? Or yeah, well, oh, we have which, which, which you know, we have look, oh. look, look, with a pill, Finny. I am not cherry uh, uh, or a Sorry, seed. Well, he never bowls a seed. I can tell you that anymore. <laughs> he, he used to, but uh, but he does bowl with a cherry, and occasionally there's a good pill. But, uh, and there's more served them now. There are pink ones around, is it? Because a pink pill just kind of rolls off the tongue. You don't say a red pill, but a pink uh, pill, a new pink pill. The thing <laughs> is, Alison is absolutely right. She's absolutely correct. It is the pitch. We know in the laws it's the pitch. We have pitch reports, and, and pitch reports tell you whether or not a pitch on, is good or not. But we have a sticky wicket. And if we don't allow for a sticky wicket, this, is, this term came up in 1882. We have been saying this. For 120 years, if we as commentators can't say he danced down the wicket, if we can't say it's a sticky wicket, if we we are we are screwed. So all I'm begging for, right? All I'm begging is that the general population can handle the idea that one word can have two meanings. Because <laughs> it's it's you know, it happens in all of other language, and it shouldn't be that hard for us. As especially us, because we're like you know over two years old. If we were maybe like eighteen months, it might be a bit problematic. But for Christ's sake, we can have two meanings for the same word. I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I think I think I better. So I might not get a word in. That's how we feel for forty-five minutes every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So That's if it, the I'll term watch. sticky wicket has yeah. been in play since the 1880s, which indeed it has, that just goes to show how long people have been getting it wrong for. So it oh. is high time, is it not, that we start to get it right? You're not going to get me, Alison, but you're going <laughs> back to 1881. I am a progressive kind of guy. I'm looking at sort of like 1924, 25, when... England started to be able to fight back against Australia. You know, I'm not prepared to go all the way to 2021, but I'm way beyond 1881. I, so you should stop looking that far back for Surrey's championship wins then. So Hang on a minute. Is that What's what you're saying? Today? Is this all about absolutely nailing me? What a, what a, what yeah, a, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, the, the, the worst thing about this, from my point of view, is that I was a, a couple of weeks ago. I was completely agreeing with everything that you were saying, Dan. But now that the opportunity is here to be unkind, yeah. I'm just, I'm just absolutely well, you know, jumped the, on the bandwagon. There's, there's, there's another significant part of this, which is that Alison is basically right. Um, and, and so, not so, about, so I, I rest my case again. No, wait a minute. Yeah, well, we've got that minute. as this the podcast. Go on, go on. Be, Let's take it deeper. Then take it deeper. I will not allow you to be completely right, but you are right. You are absolutely right <laughs> that there is an enormous amount of ambiguity in the way that we talk about cricket that is very challenging for people who are trying to get into cricket, and that is a totally fair conversation to have. I'm delighted to say though that we think, don't we, Ali, that outs are out. We don't, we're not going to have to do that. And I know, I, I don't know about you, but I thought, how am I going to describe the leading outtaker of this season without sort of not doing it? 
Yeah, I, I, I felt about that, that, again, I understand the logic around trying to make cricket more accessible to people coming new into the game. But all of us were new into the game at some point. But then again, I appreciate that it's easier to learn a game if you're surrounded by the game. And, you know, for me, it was my dad who was a huge cricket nut and my my brother played, older brother, who I just wanted to emulate and copy. So I, it was just around all the time. And ECB want to reach out to people who haven't been around cricket all the time. And I don't know whether there's anything in having some kind of buddying system um, or volunteer system around whether it is just the hundred. But so I'm going through a really interesting experience at the moment as an adult learning a whole new sport. And this is the sport of AFL. So Aussie rules, I've sort of known about roughly, but genuinely never engaged in it until I went and lived in Australia for, and I was actually there for into the winter season. And I had sort of watched it and just, again, I didn't know the rules, I didn't know the terminology, I didn't know any of the players. So there's two things which have really got me engaged. The first was going to a game with someone who did love the game and knew the game, and I just peppered them with questions as I sat at the MCG, thinking, where's the pitch gone? Where are the sight screens? This is wrong. This just feels like sacrilege. Get off the square! But (laughs) by being able to pepper my cousin with questions and and learn this game as a sports fan I just got into it and again I then I lived off their enthusiasm for the game it was infectious and we all know that cricket is infectious when you're enthusiastic about it you can pass Mm. that enthusiasm on the other thing which has really got me engaged actually and maybe as a journalist I'm really big on this but storytelling and caring about the people who are the protagonists, which is Finney, which is all the players out in the middle. And with the AFL, again, I, I just, something was missing. I just didn't really feel invested in it because I didn't know any of the players. However, I've just watched a documentary tracking the 2020 AFL season. I now feel like I know quite personally about six key players that were tracked in this documentary and you learn about their personal lives, you learn about their characters. It's a really, really good piece of television. And now when I watch, actually, I won't just watch Port Adelaide, who are my team, but I'll watch Fremantle Dockers or I'll watch Richmond Tigers because I now know a couple of the key players in that team as well. And I feel like I care how they get on that week. And I remember going back to the 2012 Paralympics. I worked for Channel 4 and we did a big brainstorming session talking about how we could make the public, get the public to engage with sporting events and athletes who they knew very little about you know Paralympics comes around once every four years there's Olympians that people know very little about Paralympians is is even lower profile and and people really needed educating didn't know what what they were going to be watching so a very simple thing was you know if you see eight athletes lined up on the side of a swimming pool you don't know who any of them are why should you care who wins why are you going to stay engaged and watch it however a simple thing of showing a you know two minute VT before that race starts of the swimmer in lane three who is swimming with only one leg because the other leg got sliced off by the propeller of her family's boat when they were on a day trip when she was 13 you're suddenly like whoa I really want her to do well now I've just watched her story I know a bit about her and you suddenly feel invested and I would love to see the hundred sort of take that because all the protagonists, if you're new to cricket, you don't know who Johnny Bairstow is. I mean, gosh, do you, do you remember the experiment that was done a long time ago, well, a while ago now, where children were shown photographs of Alistair Cook, England test captain at the time, and because they were sponsored by a supermarket chain, 
kids just saw this guy wearing a white shirt with a supermarket chain logo on his shirt and thought he was the guy that works in Waitrose. <laughs> so is that, that oh. element of sort of recognition and telling the public who the players are, I think the storytelling aspect, social media will play a huge part in that as well. It's got to be a key part in getting people invested in not just the 100, but, but wider cricket as well. It, it absolutely is. And I, and I hear your impassioned plea and I'm entirely behind you. Alison, but we've got to at the same time, I think, don't we? Like you said right at the beginning of that, people get invested in sport, kids get invested in sport, and they love it because they watch it and they get engaged by it. A sport doesn't need to be scared of the terminology it uses. Oh, embrace you know, it. It's a beautiful it, thing. It's, a th it's the way that we describe our sport. And kids have an incredible facility with language. They learn languages very, very quickly. So a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, and when we were listening to it, we got all those fielding positions because we were listening, because we cared, because we were absorbing all of it. Cricket doesn't need to be scared of what it is, does it? It needs to just use what it is and get access to the people who love it and be confident. I, I completely agree with what Alex had said about, you know, it's personality-driven. And, uh, yeah, I think the drive to survive has been great for Formula One. And sport needs good guys and bad guys and pantomime villains, which is why Deshambo is great for golf, whether you like the guy or not. It, you know, we need characters like that. And also, I've noticed, well, I remember when 2020 started, when the players used to come out to bat and it used to have their stats, and then it would say their favourite film, mm. or it would say, and little things like that. And they've gone out of the game as well. And I do think personality is a huge part of sport. Uh, Alison, I know you've got a very busy day tomorrow, but you've been brilliant. So will you come back and chat to us sometime? It's nice to have an actual proper journalist yeah, on the podcast for once. Not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Alison. Love yeah, really, really good to see Thanks, you guys. Ali. No worries. Thank you very Thanks, much Alison. for having me All on. Right. Right. See you, Ali. Cheers, Alison. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. Well, that was lovely. Thank you very much to Alison Mitchell. We'll get her back on again in the near future. But uh, it, it disappointingly ended up with all very amicably. I was hoping there was going to be, you know, bloodshed at one point. Uh, so, <laughs> Finney, um, I want to come to you, mate. And uh, you've been sat there very quietly just watching that uh, very middle class argument unfold before your very eyes. But uh, we touched on it. Middlesex, a brilliant result and a much needed result against their fierce rivals in, in Surrey. And uh, how have you found it? Because obviously you didn't play the first game, then you played the second game and played well and then didn't play this game. With, I guess it's a double-edged sword and, I, and I'll lead it on to the Ed Smith discussion. But um, this rest and rotation, which is a very modern sporting thing, how do you find it? Because on the one hand, you're sat there and you're getting rested and you're letting your body recover and stuff. But on the other hand, what about rhythm and just wanting to bowl and get as many balls under, under your belt when you're sat there being rested, do, do, do you feel like this is actually, you know, as much as I always want to be playing, I get this, this is useful, this is beneficial? Or do you always think you are you just want to be bowling, and especially early in the season, playing as much as possible? Yeah, I, I err on the side of wanting to play and bowl as much as possible. And when you're in good form, you try and make the most of it because cricket is a game where, where you do have peaks and troughs in form. But... I was just left out this week. I wasn't rested or anything. I, I was just left out of the squad because Tim Murta came back in. Um, and it's more a horses for courses selection for us at the moment because we've got every fast bowler in the club is fit and firing and ready to go. So if the wicket looks as though it's going to suit guys who pitch it up and hit the stumps a lot more, then they're going to play. And if the wickets look harder and more bouncy than the guys who suit those star wickets, 
are going to play instead. So yeah, it's very much at the moment trying to keep yourself topped up. Uh, went into Lords on Sunday morning when there was literally no one there to have a bowl for five or six overs just to keep trying to tick over. But yeah, through my career, I've been the sort of person who's always wanted to bowl as much as possible to keep that rhythm up. And then when you're not in rhythm, you're trying to find that rhythm. So yeah, I um, sort of always prided myself on being the sort of person who would try and work my way through or, uh, or, or you know, if you feel a little niggle or something just to try and crack uh, on and, and make the most see, of it. You, you are quite a sort of late, later season bowler as well. I mean, in Middlesex, you've got Murta and Bamba, which is quite the issue in, in April. And you can see, can't you, why they'd want to play them both in tandem because a bit of movement, a bit of nibble, a bit of this, that and the other. Ronald Jones coming back. At the moment, are you a sort of like a sort of more May-June kind of bowler than an April bowler? You like a bit of bounce. I don't know. I'd like to... I'd like to think that I'm a well, any time of the yeah. year bowler. Do you want to be? Um, but it's, it's quite cold right now. Yeah, I think you not prefer to be a June bowler. It is pretty cold, <laughs> although it couldn't be more cold than it was at the Aegeus Bowl last week. That was bloody cold, far too cold. I took to bowling in my jumper. You don't see that very often anymore. A bowler bowling in his knitted jumper. But oh, I was that's sacrilegious! In that. That's sacrilegious. Well, we. Where, but short sleeve, like a sleeveless one. We actually played against Jason Holder a few years ago at Northampton. And there'll definitely be footage of this somewhere. But he bowled in a long sleeve woolly jumper, which I don't think I've ever seen anyone do before. He was that cold. It was like the 5th of April. You know, 5th of April. And, um, and yeah, full sleeve knitted jumper bowling in it. That must be restrictive to, to getting your arm up. I guess with Jason Holder, it doesn't matter if he's a couple of inches shorter when he bowls. I guess it'll make a difference. Um, well, I mean, it leads on to Ed Smith because so the news came out that uh, Ed Smith, who has been head of the England selectors for the last couple of years, has been kind of got rid of, if, if we're honest about it. And it'll be interesting to find out what goes on here because it sounds like they're going to give a lot more power, I guess, if you like. To, to the captain and the coach, whoever it may be in the future of the England team. And it'll be interesting to know behind the scenes whether they're dissatisfied with Ed Smith's rotation that we talked about in this podcast. And there's lots of controversy over handling certain players and when players were rested and, and things like that. Did you find it weird, Finney? When, when you were in the England team, I, I've always found it such an alien concept in cricket. It seems so bizarre that there's a boardroom full of selectors picking squads and picking teams where, you know, Jose Mourinho would never have the board tell, well, he won't have anyone tell him what to do at the moment. He's out of work. But, you know, you know, Pat Guardiola picks the team, not four blokes in a suit in a boardroom somewhere. When you're in the England team, how much did you think that the captain and the coach already picked the squad? Because in my mind, the selectors thing felt, felt outdated anyway. Yeah, well, when I was, um, when I played for England, it's, it was even more outdated. You had directors of cricket at counties who were England selectors. So, so yeah, they're like dual employment style roles. Uh, and yeah, it's a sort of role that does need to be, or it was good that it turned into a full-time role, I think, so that he could go around or they could go around and watch as much cricket as possible um, without being impaired by other commitments. But um, yeah, it, it's funny. It sort of evolved over my time. At the beginning, it was Jeff Miller, who was the first selector who I ever dealt with. And 
he had a couple of that James Whitaker was his right hand man and he had one more person who I can't remember who but the captain and coach would always be actively involved in the selection process but as I understand it it was done on votes so people would vote for players within the room and I don't think anyone's vote was more heavily weighted than anyone else's um, and I might be wrong and, and but, but this is how I understood it so so the captain and the coach could be overruled by the three selectors who were there who would outnumber them so I think now to move it forward and to get it so that the head coach and the captain on every tour that they go on or every game that they play they have people who they have selected themselves and want there as part of the team, I think it actually makes far more sense when it comes to that as opposed to, and I'm sure they worked in tandem and I'm sure that there was communication between them, but I'd imagine that this now gives the coach and the captain absolute say of who they get in their teams, which I'd imagine after a review of the winter and you look at the way that um, the workloads were managed. And and in my opinion, the workloads did need to be managed, um, but after a review of whether it was done properly or not, I'd say that, that this is probably the conclusion that they've come to. Um, and maybe even Chris Silverwood himself would have pleaded for a little bit more control as to who goes into what squad, because ultimately he is one of the people who picked the 11 at the end of the day. Absolutely, Finney. I mean, the history of selection in this country is, is one of the more fascinating. There's a book to be written about it, frankly. Uh, when I was growing up, the TCCB... Only you will read that book. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll probably write it, read it, and no one will ask them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll self-publish it. It'll be yours as well, it's your Citizen Kane. Self-publish, yeah. <laughs> I write it, read it. <laughs> but really, um, it, it's true, though. Um, you know, the TCCB of the 1970s and early, and early 80s, like Sir Peter May, Alec Bedser... It, it was really checking out the averages at the bottom of the Daily Telegraph every day that, that bothered to publish it in those days, if you can believe such a thing. And now we've moved to a world that has gradually improved through contracts. And as Philia said, he's described most, most of those guys. Jeff Miller was one of the great talent, basically a talent scout. It just went around the country genuinely looking, doing 100,000 miles and watching. And Whitaker did exactly the same thing. Now, the, the choices that people make after seeing those things are what we tend to argue about. And that's why we say, you know, is a selector any good or not? I think that what we've got to remember is that James Taylor is still around. So Ed Smith was the head of the selectors, and James Taylor is a guy who is watching everything, seeing everything, assimilating the data. He's an incredible guy, James Taylor. I work with him on TMS, and uh, I promise you that he will be doing most of the selection work. And most of the selection work is identifying who are people who can make it into that test team. Now, when you get to the end point, that it is about, you know, Silverwood's there, isn't he, Billy? I mean, he's there in that team group. And he's feeling what other people are feeling. And those final selections are made on a combination of the pitch, the situation, and the team. You know? So I can kind of understand why that's happening. And they've essentially made James say that the bloke who's... I think it makes yeah. absolute sense. I can't, Only well, I think, cricket could wait this long to come up with this. It makes absolute sense to me. Sorry, Finney. 
No, I'm sorry. I, I, I also think that it, it gives the coach to say they're picking a 15 man touring party away on a tour. Sometimes there might be one or two selections out of that 15 that are almost a gut feel from the head selector about someone who might be appropriate in those conditions. Whereas the head coach has the ability to assess people's temperament firsthand, which is so important in international cricket, how they interact with the group and how they get along with the group, which on a tour is a very big factor in determining how successful the tour is. And if the head coach and the captain aren't 100% happy with one or two of the players who are on that tour and not happy, but don't see them as part of the, of the mainstream plans, it then reduces the group that you're actually picking the 11 from quite significantly. So, um, yeah, I think it does make sense to give the coach a lot more responsibility when it comes to picking the squads. Uh, and I think James Taylor's new role, I mean, it's quite fashionable, isn't it, to just <laughs> rename a role for someone. <laughs> I think he's chief scout or something now, yeah. isn't he? I think he's a, it'd be determined as a scout. So it's his job to go around and watch people closely. And I think that people who know cricket and people who um, understand how professional cricket works, you can watch someone play and you can see by their mannerisms, what their temperament is like. And it's those sorts of guys and things that James Taylor will be out there looking for those signs. And then that's when they can step up. And he's a very, very astute reader of cricketers. And, the experience he's gone through as well has really helped him. And he seems like he's he's popular on the circuit. He's the sort of guy that can, he'll know what people are like in the dressing room. He's got enough friends and contacts in the game that he can go, look, you yeah. play with this guy. What What's he like, you know, in the dressing room and stuff? Finney, when you were on the brink of the England side, were you, do you remember games where, because, I mean, it happens when you're a really young kid. It's sort of like, when you're playing school cricket and oh, there'll be a Middlesex scout at the game and stuff like that. And you recognise a bloke stood over there by the trees and you're like, oh, that's probably the bloke who's come to see. Do you remember being on the brink of the England team and uh, playing for Middlesex and being aware of England selectors watching you? And, and did you ever have great or bad games that you remember in front of any potential England selectors? Um, no, I mean, first and foremost, I... There might be a helpline to help you with the man in the trees at your um, children's cricket game <laughs> that you described there. It's, yeah, it was dad, actually. It was weird. <laughs> um, but it, I, it all happened quite suddenly for me. So I was not really considering myself. I mean, I made my test debut in March 2010. So before the English season started. And in 2009, I, I played my second full season of county cricket did okay like I thought I took 50 odd wickets at just over 30 as an average so didn't didn't rip the world apart but I had a steady year it felt as though I cemented my place in the Middlesex team and that's all I cared about and I wasn't aware or I wouldn't have even thought that England selectors were thinking about me then but then I developed at a rate that winter and got selected on a Lions tour to the point where I leapfrogged a lot of people to get into the test team so I probably didn't have the same experience that some guys have where, I mean, now Titch, James Taylor, every time he's at a game watching, he puts it on his bloody Instagram story. So just to put people <laughs> a bit more under the pump, he's like, oh, day two at Lords versus Surrey versus Middlesex. You're like, the guys who are on the brink, you'd think, oh, Jesus, hey, James should, Taylor's you here. You should have <laughs> your phone, Finney. Uh, you know, this is, this is not a time to look at your phone. That's for us to look at our phones. 
<laughs> well, I don't think he's there watching me at the moment, is he? He's not, <laughs> he's not coming watching me. He'd be a bloody good 12th man for the yeah, test team. He carries those drinks with, with such personality. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, I fucking I do. I'm very good at it. <laughs> well, we, we were chatting before we started recording, but we're going to do a 12th man special one. We're going to, because uh, I want to speak to Fiddy at length about the ins and outs of being a 12th man and and how nice it is at the moment. I said, it's better to surely just be not picked at all. So you can go and have a few drinks in a pub beer garden somewhere. Uh, I've got to move on, but also I want to give a few uh, other mentions. I mean, we're talking about, you know, selection and being on the brink of the England team. But uh, we've Sibley out for a few weeks with an injury. Hasib Hamid, remember him? Oh. Remember him? Uh, faced 635 deliveries in this game. Scored 101 in the first innings, 114 not out in the second. So back for almost 14 hours, only getting out once. I should point out, in that game, uh, it was an absolute road. It was a, a bowler's graveyard there. But uh, Dan, you got very excited at the mere mention of Hassib. Ab- absolutely extraordinarily excited. I get almost pre apic at the notion of uh, Hassib. He, uh, he, he is the missing link. He is the place that English cricket needs to go to. Not because I genuinely believe that he's going to be brilliant, but because of the dream of Hasib Abid. And I think everybody who remembers that India series, the broken hand, turned the ball into the onside, smashed it so badly. And then the travails he's had over the last two or three years have been appalling. We thought, as Englishmen, we'd found the man who was going to open the batting England have had Alistair Cook and no one else have cemented that place since 2006. Since 2006, 15 years, Toby, Hasib Abid felt like the missing link. He did. If he comes back, if he comes back at 24, my God, there's going to be rejoicing. Well, the beauty is that because he started when he was 19, that is the beauty. He's got time on his uh, oh, yeah. time on his hands. I mean, another opening partner that's looking very good, Finney, is your your good mate Sam Robson as well. Has looked off to a really good start of the season, and you know, again in batsman's terms, what is he? Thirty-one, Sam Robson. I think he's putting his hand up there at the moment, especially with uh, you know he's got a Test century to his name as well. But is he batting well at the minute? Certainly, I only ever see the scorecards at the moment and a bit of footage, but certainly he looks good on the scorecard at the moment. Yeah, he's been great, and I think that one of his great skills is that he's just so level-headed all the time which I think is a very important characteristic for an opening batsman um I actually and I know I'm biased because he's one of my best mates so don't take it with a pinch of salt actually I'm not even going to say that I I think he was very hard done by the year that he did play test cricket with the wickets that England produced that was the series where it was like the most extreme version of green nippers and seamers to try and beat India in England to not give them a sniff. And he was out there facing the new ball against, I think, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, who's unbelievably skillful with it. And I can't think who was bowling at the other end, but someone else who... Um, Ishan who Yeah, Ishant Sharma. He took seven wickets at Lords in that series, bouncing people out, didn't he? Um, but, you know, I, I think when you look at the wickets and what he actually returned um, versus the scores in those games. I think he averaged just over 30 in seven test matches with 100. Um, So I I actually look at it as a friend and as an onlooker as well, thinking that to be discarded after seven test matches in that manner was slightly harsh. Only batsmen in England have had a terrible time of it. And not because they're not that good, but because conditions have changed. It's really, really tough as an opening batter. Craig Viz did... I sort of look at Keaton Jennings 
And Keaton Jennings, they reckon, had faced some of the toughest balls that have been bowled in Test cricket in the time that he played. And it happens all the time. If you look at when India came over here three years ago, they had two great openers. They were out, bang, bang. A Duke's ball in England, it's tough. I'll tell you what, it puts Alistair Cook's career in perspective, doesn't it? The stats that he returned opening the batting in England for, for six months a year in Test cricket, an unbelievable record. Uh, other mentions as well, uh, Ollie Robinson, who you'd imagine is surely going to play some Test cricket this summer. Um, and Matt Parkinson continues seven wickets for him in the last innings. And Don Best, really nice to see him. He said uh, he was hating cricket a little bit in the winter, but uh, six for 53 for Yorkshire in their win as well. And uh, and probably a few full tosses in there still, but he's, he's getting there. He's getting there. Uh, I want to talk about the other end of the scale from four-day county championship cricket, proper cricket, uh, to that pyjama cricket, the IPL. You know, it's all a bit flash and no one really cares about the results, and, you know. But um, it, genuinely, on a serious topic, obviously, really horrendous statistics, COVID statistics, in India at the moment. And of course, our thoughts for everybody here at Zero Ducks giving go to people out there. I know we've got listeners over there and people affected by it. And, you know, the argument is rumbling on about whether or not the IPL should continue morally, whether it's actually safe for the players out there. And of course, a few England, uh, few Australian cricketers have already decided to go home and Ashwin has decided to drop out the tournament as well. Um, it's a difficult one. Look, there's a lot of money involved for a start. Let's not, that's a huge factor. And also, there is an argument that uh, has been put forward that whilst the IPL is on, millions of Indian people stay indoors, tens of millions of Indian people stay indoors and watch the cricket. And also from a morale point of view, that it's it's a nice bit of distraction for everything going on in the country at the moment. Uh, Finney, mate, if, if, if you were out there right now, and it's a really tough question, this, and it's hypothetical, but from a player's perspective... How would you be feeling out there at the minute? Obviously, you're getting paid a lot of money to be there. It's a lot of money to walk away from. Is it an individual case? Will it all come down to what the, the, the personality and the, the mindset of the players is? Slightly, yes. But I also think that a lot of the time as sportsmen in scenarios like this, we're guided by expert advice, much as when we travelled to Bangladesh in 2016, when there'd been a terrorist attack, we were advised that it was safe to travel there and I and we trusted the advice and, and we went and we were safe. Um, and I think that with the IPL, I would be minded to trust the experts who were, um, who are looking after the biosecure bubbles um, because I think that they can be treated as their own entity almost if, um, if you're assured that, um, that the biosecure bubbles are going to be safe. So yeah, I, I always in those scenarios, and I've not been in, in a scenario like this with COVID, where you have to wait to be guided by experts, but, but that's probably almost certainly what I would do. I think it's a really, really difficult situation. I think we've got that one of those situations where you can think two things at the same time. And one of them is that there are hundreds of thousands of people dying in India at the moment. And they are in an incredibly dreadful situation. They are the place where the pandemic has really hit right now. We've got to be mindful of that. So it's quite odd in one sense that you get to watch cricket where Danny Morrison or I or whoever's doing commentary on it is trying to find high notes and excitement and isn't this marvellous that we're watching it? Well, there's catastrophe taking place just outside the doors. 
And so it, it can look like it's a little bit unseemly, like it's a little bit distasteful. The other side of it is exactly as Finley said, you know, there's a vast number of Indians who are watching the IPL and loving it because it is their place away from the horror. You know, I spoke to a guy who works on Indian TV the other day. He said that we have got more people watching the IPL than any other program. And it happens at 7.30 at night in India. You can understand the whole idea that these guys, you know, they get four hours of staying inside, transfixed by some incredible and remarkable cricket. And India is a place that's obsessed with cricket. So I, I think it's possible to think two things at once, actually, which is that as a commentator, for example, I did a game yesterday and I was very, very aware of the situation. And I found it quite hard to get excited about a six and a four. But at the same time, I know that this is, a, this is the entertainment that is helping a lot of people through a really difficult time. I don't know the right answer. Mm. Uh, it could be it could be one or the other. Well, I and think maybe we just don't know. I think you're exactly right. That you, you know, I think everyone's opinion on it is that there is no right or wrong decision here because the players that went home. I read, you know, the, the list of the Australian players that went home, and I think everybody read that story and went, "Fair enough." <laughs> you know, good luck to them. And on the flip side, I don't have any animosity towards the ones that are staying either because I completely understand their reasons for staying. Um, there is no right or wrong answer um, unless the biosecure bubble does get, you know, infiltrated, I guess, by COVID, which is what happened when England went to South Africa. That's an entirely different story. But um, at the moment, it's carrying on. I should mention as well, Jadeja, not getting much of a look in, but he did hit 37 runs in a seven ball over in amongst it all as well. He, 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 he hit four sixes off three balls, which is <laughs> one of the greatest not... feats that any human being has ever achieved. It's like one of Finney's overs to Brendan McCullum, wasn't it? <laughs> not quite that many, thankfully. Not quite that many. No, I just, I, I wasn't at all trying to sound crass there when I sort of just spoke about the player's perspective or the selfish perspective there. I completely agree with Dan that you, you do think two things at once um, because what is happening on the outside of the stadium is something that I think everyone there will be aware of the situation um, and praying that it does that it does start to realign itself and, and to get back to, you know, to get under control. So, yeah, I, I didn't want to sound lighthearted or, or crass when, when saying you, you just simply listen to experts because it is completely and utterly not just that easy. There is an emotional element to it too. I mean, we, 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 are, we, are, we are living, Toby, in extraordinary times and... People are being asked to make decisions that are incredibly difficult. So you see three Australian cricketers, Andrew Ty, Adam Zampa, Kane Richardson, have left the IPL bubble and I entirely support their decision to do that. And then you see Pat Cummins today give a very different message, and it's a personal message, his own message about what he thinks that he needs to do. Now, what we've got to do is be kind to the players who are in that situation because... This is such a difficult place to be. You know, the IPL could end in a week. It could go all the way through to the end. I don't know. But the players who are in there, we must not demonise. We must be careful and kind to them because they're all making personal decisions mm. that are very, very difficult. Mm. Completely. Yeah, but no, I completely agree. I think whatever decision they make, there's a, there's a strong argument either way. Um, and, and purely selfishly, 
you know, as long as it does continue, it is, you know, I, I do get the, the argument that it's, it is lovely for us to have cricket to watch in the same way that as much as I don't like football with no fans and behind closed doors, I'm still watching it all because at the moment, anything that's a distraction from, from the news every night is, is very welcome. Um, well, chaps, thank you very much. And Finney, best of luck the rest of the week. I hope to see your name on that team sheet uh, on Thursday. And uh, Daniel, go and find something not useful at all to do with all your spare time. Oh, I've got, I, I tell you, I've got a, a completely free May. So if anybody, <laughs> if anybody wants me to do anything, and not even for money, I will do it. Well, get writing your book about the, yeah. is it going to be the history of selection? <laughs> there you go. This is your chance, Daniel. Start, start, start your work on that, on your probably typewriter that you still use. Uh, Finney, lovely to see you. Daniel, lovely to see you. See you next week, James. Well, see you. Podcast Network.